0: Following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. How about we pray? Father God, we just thank you so much that you've given us your word, that you've revealed yourself to us. Lord, we ask now that as we study your word, you will make our hearts open and you will do great things. Thank you for your truth. May it change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I was thinking recently about why I am a Christian. What is it about Christianity that makes it so special? And I came to the conclusion that it's actually just because it's true. It's just true. At the end of the day, it's true. It fits the historical record. You know, you can do the research and you'll see that it all matches up. It fits with what I see around the world and it helps me to understand it. It's, it just, it's sound, you know, I, I knock against it and it makes sense, it makes a good sound. It matches up with reason and the experience of our world and it works, like it changes stuff. You listen to Jesus and it changes you. It brings life and it sets people free. And as such, it really looms large, It's like this great truth that's shining out there, a giant beam of light out there and covering all things and searching us out. So the story of Jesus is true and it demands a response. The person of Jesus is someone who demands a response. As you go through John, you're asking the question, who is Jesus? Chapter 1 talks about him as God. In the second week, you thought about how he is the lamb, and then the new wine. And last week, you learnt that he was the saviour, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the king. In John 3, we learn a little bit about his kingdom. John will describe two teachers, one who gets it and one who doesn't. So last week, you would have met Nicodemus, a bashful teacher with a lesson to learn, a man of authority who had a great reputation and had it all sorted, or so he thought. He could boast of his virtue. If anyone was supposed to be in God's kingdom, it was him. But he comes to Jesus by night because he's heard Jesus speak and he's mystified by this bloke. And he asks him questions. And Jesus' answers confuse him. This man of learning who knows everything is confused by Jesus because Jesus says that you have to be born again. That being part of God's family is not a rite of birth, but a miracle of new birth. It's not about your passport. It's not about where you grew up. It's about who you know, who gave you birth. Nicodemus doesn't get it because his eyes are darkened. But today we'll see another teacher, John the Baptist, who does get it, who recognized Jesus and who lives in the light. He's sold out. He understands the truth and he loves Jesus, we kick up the story in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. It feels like there's a bit of a spiritual revival happening here. So Jesus and John are preaching up a storm and people are listening to them. They're flocking out to see them. And they're really quite uh, intrigued by these teachers. You see, back then, teachers were very careful in what they said. They didn't claim authority very often. But Jesus and John spoke with real boldness, with a real sense of urgency. See, everyone else was kind of talking about the day when the Messiah would come to save his people. But they kind of had, had talked about it for so long that they hardly believed it would happen anymore. But Jesus and John speak with this real sense of excitement. They say that the Messiah is actually here, that this is happening, that the dawn of a new age has come. We met John the Baptist in chapter 1, you know, uh, the dude, like your weird uncle kind of thing, crazy clothes, a strange diet, that's who John is. He's just, his big thing is baptism. You know, if you're at a pool, he's just going to push you in. He just can't help himself. He just, he just loves seeing people get wet. And now he's got a buddy, Jesus, John had baptized Jesus and commissioned him for his ministry, and now people are flocking to hear Jesus. In fact, so many people are coming out that they seem to be uh, leaving John and following Jesus. And apparently some of John's disciples are a bit uncomfortable about this. Verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. See, these guys have become competitive. They kind of think like it's a contest. You know, we started this whole baptizing thing and now Jesus has come along and taken all of our people. It's a bit like, you know, we gave Jesus the secret herbs and spices and now he started up his own food chain. They don't like it. It's it's Pepsi versus Coke. It's Ford versus Holden. That's what they think this is all about. But then John corrects them. His answer is swift and it's to the point. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You see, John's followers are worried about Jesus' as competition. But that's not what John is thinking about at all. He's excited that Jesus is here. In fact, John's ministry was always about Jesus. He was waiting for Jesus to show up. He's pleased that people are following him. He'll give his followers to Jesus. You see, he wasn't building his own kingdom, but Christ's kingdom. John 1 verse 6 says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. What that passage is saying is that John was sent from God. He was handpicked as God's special messenger. It was his job to witness to Jesus, to tell everyone why Jesus was so special that everyone would believe. Now, he's not the light. He was there to point to the light, to the one sent before him. John is here. I was trying to think of an analogy. John is effectively the electrician wiring up the house so that when Jesus comes, the light can be flicked on and everyone can see. So John is not the light. He's just the one who points to the light. He understood that his task was to get people ready for when Jesus would come. He sees himself basically as the groomsman, as the best man, and Jesus is the groom. Verse 29, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease had the uh, honour of being a groomsman a few times and it's, it's, it's a great honour. It's a real privilege to be there as your mate gets married. Uh, I don't know. We often talk about women having secret women's business. There's actually, there's secret men's business as well. So ladies, you might not know this, but guys also talk about relationships too in a more manly way. But <laughs> I remember having some mates and we would just analyse our relationships constantly. Most of the time we weren't, with anyone. So we were analysing who we might like and whether they would like us. And I remember it was just it was stupid. Like we would you know, I was walking along and my little finger touched her hand and, and, and she sort of didn't seem to mind. Maybe that's a good sign. I don't know. I don't know how I got a date ever. <laughs> let alone get married. Thank you, Ivana, for being good enough to marry me. I remember when we got married <clears throat> I was really nervous about the wedding day and standing up there and everyone looking at me. And everyone said, no, 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 Luke, it's, it's not about you. They're, they're really not looking at you. They're looking at the bride. And it's a bit like that with a groomsman as well. A good groomsman understands that he's not the focus, That the groom is who he's there for. He's there to prepare for the groom, to make sure everything's okay, to get him on to, to the church on time. He's there to make sure that he's ready to catch him if he faints. He's there to make sure that the ring is all secure And he flies up and there's nothing wrong when he stands up in front of everyone. That's what the groomsman's there for. It's a great honor. It's a great responsibility. And it's also a great joy. It's really amazing seeing your mates get married. You know, being up there next to them and seeing their bride come down the aisle and seeing his joy, you feel a great sense of joy as you're there. And that's how John feels as he looks at Jesus, his cousin, his friend, the Messiah, come to save the world. In fact, John uses this marriage analogy really deliberately because in the Old Testament, God had promised that his Savior would come like a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride. That's what God's like. He loves his people. He rejoices when he sees his people walk down the aisle. John is the perfect wingman. Like, his job here is done. He was called to be the best man. Now the groom's arrived, and it's all worked out beautifully. Things are ready to go. It's a job well done. Do you notice how humble this guy is? Like, he started his ministry first. He was famous before Jesus was. It might have been tempting for him to just embrace that celebrity. He could have been caught up in it all, caught up in the influence that he had. Jesus actually said about him in Matthew 11 that among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying, he is the dude. This guy is amazing. There's been no one more impressive than him. But John never trades on that. He understands his calling. He never loses perspective or his place in the, the whole scheme of things. He understood that he was there to prepare the way for Jesus. To wire the lighting so that when the light came it could shine he says he must increase but I must decrease you know, his followers wanted to build his own kingdom but John's not like that he's here to build Jesus's kingdom he didn't feel like he was losing people now he was gaining them for Christ John gets it he gets it I mean you compare him to Nicodemus from last week Nicodemus was in the dark. He didn't understand who Jesus was. He couldn't see him. He didn't get it. But John is in the light. He's been born again. He's seen the light and he'll bear witness to it. He gets it. But what does he get exactly? What is it specifically about Jesus that makes him so special, that makes John so willing to give up everything for this man? Well, he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us that there's two things about Jesus. And he's going to leave us with a choice as to what we do with those things. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. This is actually John the writer, not John the Baptist, but he's explaining the uniqueness of Jesus and he's presenting us with a choice. What will we do with this Jesus? There's many voices, but why should we listen to Jesus? Why should we be confident that he has the truth? The first reason is this. Jesus knows what he's talking about. Verse 31, Jesus comes from heaven. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. When Jesus talks about heaven, he knows what he's talking about because he's experienced it. Heaven is his hometown. Jesus knows the lingo. He understands how it works. He's got the local knowledge. Because he's God. He's got first-hand experience of the divine. Now think about maybe a place that you knew, maybe where you grew up, maybe you lived there for a long time, and you just knew that place. I can remember my, my parents' house. I spent a long, a long time there, and I knew everything about it. You know, if you came to my house, I could show you the balcony where my brother climbed up when he was a toddler, and my dad freaked out. What's my son doing climbing up this ladder? I could show you, I could tell you about the stories within that house. I could show you all the windows that I broke. I could tell you about what it was like on a hot night and you're lying in bed and you could hear the neighbours and the bug zapper every two seconds going off and how we'd start to laugh as they'd kind of progressively get more and more drunk and more and more funny as the, the night went on. I could tell you all of these things because that's where I'm from. I saw it. I heard things in that place. I have first-hand knowledge of it. That's what Jesus is saying about heaven, about God. He comes from heaven. He's from the Father's side. And so he's got first-hand knowledge of how it all works. That's why he's worth listening to. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Jesus was there when time began, when everything was made. John 1, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was there when God's plan of salvation was prepared and plotted out. Jesus is there when the prophecies were written. Jesus was there until it was time for him to come to earth, for the writer to step into his story, for the creator to step into his creation. And that's what what sets him apart from everyone else. He is above all of these things. You know, there's many voices in our culture pretending to have the truth, thinking and believing themselves that they have the truth. You know, we're fascinated by these figures. Jimmy mentioned the Dalai Lama, Deepak Chopra, Yoda from the Star Wars movies. And they always say all these really impressive things, you know, you've got to listen to the voice within. You've got to let the universe decide. They speak about things like oneness, they use words like manifest and enlightenment and all this stuff, and it just sounds impressive. It's attractive because somehow they seem above the world. You know, we're kind of stuck here and and we're just thinking about our mortgage or we're thinking about where we're going to put our kids in school or something like that. And these guys seem above all of that. They seem superior somehow. It's like they're in touch with the spiritual realm and we're just kind of down here. But at the end of the day, they're just humans like us. They belong to the earth. When they speak about heaven, all they can speak about is what they can imagine. But Jesus speaks about what he knows. He's been there. He is the God man. He is the human who is from heaven. John 3 says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Jesus is from above. Jesus is above all. Jesus knows what he's talking about because he has first hand knowledge of heaven and of God. That's the first reason we should listen to him. The second reason is this that Jesus speaks the words of God. Verse thirty four for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. You see, Jesus is careful with the with the words that he chooses, but he's bold in what he says. He teaches only what he's told to say. But what he says, he claims, has been given to him by God. John 14, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus speaks God's words. And he's able to do that because he has a spirit without measure, we're told here. Now, this is a big deal to understand why this is such a big call. We kind of need to understand how the spirit worked in the Old Testament and, and leading up to Jesus. So basically what happened was... Well, people would only have the Spirit for a short amount of time. The Spirit would come to just a few people, like a prophet, and they'd be given the words to to, to read out and to, to write out their prophecy. And then when they'd finish that, the Spirit would leave them. But Jesus is saying that he, the Spirit remains on him without measure. It's boundless. He's just full of the Spirit. He constantly has the Spirit. Everything that he says then is God's words. You know, just listening to him, it's like the Bible is being written in front of you. That's what Jesus was like. So this is someone you've got to listen to. This is someone who demands an audience, who commands a response. Jesus is above all. Firstly, because he knows what he's talking about, and secondly, because he speaks the words of God. When Jesus speaks, God is speaking and when God speaks, truth is revealed, undeniable, complete, resolute, reliable truth. God is the origin of all facts. He's the decider. He marks out what is real. He defines those things. Psalm 119 says that the sum of your word is truth. everything you say it just adds up and it shows that everything that you say is true, reliable. The question then is what will we do with this truth verse 36 John presents the options whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him that's some solemn stuff right there whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him God's wrath is not a comfortable subject for us to talk about We don't want to think of God as wrathful. It seems like that doesn't fit with a loving God. See, the problem is we can't imagine someone being wrathful and loving at the same time. I'm going to paraphrase the writer here. He says, our problem is that in human experience, wrath and love normally abide in mutually exclusive compartments. It's like we have a love compartment, a love box and a wrath box. And we can't imagine how they can be together. You know, love drives wrath out, and, and wrath drives love out. That's how we imagine it, but that's not the way it is with God. God's wrath is not a blind rage. It's completely rational and clear, and he holds it together with love. You think about uh, that, that poor kid who, who was bashed to death by his dad a couple of weeks ago. You might remember on the other side of the city, just, you know, just at the cricket ground, his dad comes up, Bashes him to death. Just a horrible, horrible story. We're all shocked by that. When we hear that story, we demand justice. We demand something happens there. We want God to be wrathful against that. To step in. And we know that if God does do that, that that would actually be loving. He would be defending those who are defenceless. He's he's bringing his power to those who are powerless. That's a good wrath. This writer says, God in his perfections must be wrathful against his rebel image bearers, for they have defended him. God in his perfections must also be loving towards his rebel image bearers, for he is that kind of God. See, what we find difficult, though, is we can imagine this guy over here who's just killed his son. We can imagine that God's wrath should be against him. But we can't imagine that it should be against us. We find that hard to to deal with. And it's easy to assume that wrath is just for the really bad. You know, every week in the Herald Sun there'll be a front page headline about pure evil and it's got a, a picture or a story about some creep that we we don't want to be around. A murderer or something like that. See what they're doing though is we're saying that evil is just something out there. It's something that those people do, but we're not kind of contaminated by it. We don't need to to think about that. But see, the thing is, that's not how God views evil. He's not kind of ranking all of these sins and just saying, like, if you can avoid the seven deadly sins, you're sweet. That's not how it works. What God is assessing is how we've responded to Christ. Verse 36 Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. So God's wrath is for anyone who rejects his son. Sin is a relational thing. And if we don't seek to mend that relationship with God, then that is sin. When we walk away from God. And the book of Romans chapter 3 says that all of us by default are in opposition to God. We're separate from God. We are all under sin, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. See, God is offended, God is hurt that we wouldn't live with him. We wouldn't live in relationship to him and now His wrath remains on us it was was there right from the start you see what John's saying there the wrath of God remains on us it was right there because we just walked away from God by default we just did that and that wrath remains on us God's justice will start for, for with us his wrath hangs heavy upon us unless he takes it away We need God to take the burden of his wrath away from us. In his love, we need him to to raise it up away from us, to take it away. And that is what God does through Jesus. You see, God doesn't revel in his wrath. He doesn't enjoy it. The book of Ezekiel says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. And so out of sheer love, he offers sinners a way to escape. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. See, our sin, God's wrath, was transferred to Jesus. Jesus carried the weight of God's wrath. He absorbed all of it. and He paid the price. And now that's lifted up off us. The burden is taken away. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life see, it's not about how good we are. It's about recognizing how bad we are. It's not about trying to earn his love or prove ourselves. It's understanding that we can't do anything. And then coming to Jesus with desperation and saying, look, I just need you to save me. I need you to take the wrath off me. Believing that he can do that. And in embracing the new life that he gives us. So when we come home to him, he embraces us. His wrath no longer remains on us. It's taken away. The storm passes. The clouds clear and new life can begin. And that's what God is offering to us today. John is presenting us with a choice. Choose God and choose life or choose yourself and continue under that wrath, that separation from God. Now, John knows that this is a big choice. So he's presenting his argument very methodically. He wants to say, you can trust Jesus. He is the truth. He is reliable. You know, he knows what he's talking about. He's from above. He came to bring life. And he invites us to take it. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you're just just not sure. You know, you've heard these claims. You've probably heard them a few times. And you're just not sure that you can trust them. How can I I base my whole life on this? Is this a strong enough truth? Or maybe you're just wondering, will God actually forgive me? Like if this wrath is so real, then how can I know that, that I'll actually be forgiven? Will it work? Will it actually change my life? Maybe you're here and you're addicted to something and you're frustrated within that and you're just burdened by how life continues in a repeating pattern. And you're wondering, how can God actually change that? How can this truth be different? Is it just like every other book that I see on the bookshelf or every other show I see like after 12 o'clock at night that has just got all these promises for me? How can I know that these will be true? Well, if you're not sure about the truth, God is inviting you to test it. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, John's imagining some sort of seal, you know, like a wax seal on a letter or a stamp or a signature, saying, yep, this is rigid edge. this works out, this is authentic. John's saying that everyone who believes Jesus' words will be able to sign off that it's true. So if you're not sure about Christianity, this verse is saying, take a plunge, go for it, and you'll see that it's true. I remember seeing my brother. I have this vivid memory of him. I'm five years younger than him, and uh, I remember him going to the swimming pool, and he was learning how to swim. And he was saying, oh, I'll show you how I can dive off the little diving platform. So he went up there, and he just sort of stood there,
1: Like this, like for five minutes.
0: He just just couldn't actually make that leap. Don't be stuck on the side of the pool. Jesus is offering this thing. He's offering you this opportunity to take the plunge, to dive in. He's saying that it'll work, that it'll be true. This isn't just a blind leap. You know, there's lots of other friends next to my brother jumping in, and they were fine. There's lots of other people around you, Perhaps who can tell you, can testify that this will work out, that this will be okay. Now Christianity isn't a leap into the unknown. This is based on historical truth. People have done the research. People have asked the questions and found the truth. I can speak for myself of the kind of questions that I've continually asked and always found that the answers come back. Don't hide behind... Your questions, don't stay on the side of the pool. Jesus promises truth and he invites you to test it. John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's Jesus' promise. That's Jesus' offer. Jesus comes from above. He's above all others. He speaks the word of God. He knows what he's talking about. You can trust him. This is strong enough to hold on to. This is big enough to carry you. Don't delay. Jesus offers everything. Offers you everything. He doesn't want you to wait. And you might be here today and you've already done that. You can testify. You can set your seal to the fact that Jesus is true. And you're here and you're celebrating that. That's awesome. I want you to notice what John says here, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Do you notice that has eternal life? It's present tense. It's already begun. Your eternal life is secure with God. Your destiny is set and it's already begun. This is not just something that will happen later on. I accept that we're going to die. But that is a transition to a new thing. The eternal life has already begun. When you were born again, when you trusted yourself to Jesus, your eternal life began. A life with God, a life knowing God began. John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you believe in him? Yes, great. Eternal life has already begun. An eternal life is an abundant, abundant thing. He's not talking about possessions or stuff here. He's talking about a relationship with God. He's talking about knowing Jesus. He's talking about a seed that just kind of explodes and grows and grows. That's what eternal life is. You've begun to know Jesus. You've begun to know God, and that will continue forever without end. Your future has already begun. Do you see yourself as inhabiting eternity? That's kind of a weird thought. We don't sort of think like that. We just kind of figure that that's just something that will happen later on. But it's actually begun now. And you can see how that can change you. You look at John. That's why he's so humble. That's why he's so willing to serve someone else. Because he knows that eternal life has already begun. He's, his future's mapped out. He's ready to go with this. And I think it's going to change the way we think about everything. It's going to change the way we think about how we use our money, how we spend our time, how we approach marriage, kids, our priorities, everything like that. Do people look at you and think that there is something abundant about it? Is, there something, is there something amazingly eternal? Is there a different kind of perspective, a wisdom that someone has? Because they know that this is not everything, that now is not everything, but there is an eternity to come. Does that shape the way you live or are we time-bound? Are we captured by the here and now, fixated on the, on the present? John understood that Jesus had the truth. John understood that he was from above, that he knew what he was talking about, that he spoke God's words, and that changed everything for him. God is inviting us to embrace this truth and to live for this truth. How about I pray? Father God, we thank you that you have revealed to us the truth, that Jesus is from above and that he gives us all things. We thank you that we can rely on him, that he is truly the place of life and freedom and hope. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to you. Thank you that you won't let us down, that you won't drop us, you won't let us go. We thank you that you will hold us for eternity. We ask, Lord, that we might grasp that that has already begun, And may it reshape the way that we live our life here and now. For your glory, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs Podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au